Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to bring to you Mr. Jim Riddle. He is the Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota's Southwest Research and Outreach Center. He is one of our national experts about organic food and agriculture. He served on the National Organic Standard Board from 2001 through 2005, and he was the founding chair for the International Organic Inspectors Association. Jim, welcome. Well, thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be on air with you again. Well, I wanted you to be my guest again because you were so great the first time, but also I attended your e-organic webinar titled Why Eat Organic, and I thought the entire world should hear this. So there's a lot of misconception about the term and the label organic. So let's just start our program with an introduction to what is organic farming? Yeah, well, uh, since 2002, any food that's labeled organic and sold as such in the United States has to have been produced and processed according to federal regulations. And those regulations didn't just come out of the blue. They really built from the ground up on certification systems that originated in the U.S. in in the mid-1970s. And by the end of the 1980s, there were a patchwork of state laws and private certifiers. And the organic community went to Congress and asked for a federal law to set a common standard, and that's what we have now. And under that standard, well, I'll just read the definition of organic production that's in the Code of Federal Regulations, because I I think it really tells a lot that uh, organic production is defined as a production system. So it's a systems approach. It looks at everything going on, managed to respond to site-specific conditions by integrating cultural, biological, and mechanical practices that foster cycling of resources, promote ecological balance, and conserve biodiversity. So you see that's a really ecological, holistic vision that's captured in this definition of organic production in federal statute. And for a product to be sold as organic, the farm has to have met a set of standards that are also defined in the regulation and Each farm and processing facility has to be inspected by a third-party inspector representing USDA-approved certification agency at least once a year. And there's a lot of records that have to be kept. Organic farmers have to practice soil-building crop rotations and protect water quality, prevent erosion, and use organic seeds for their crops. Uh, livestock products have to be come from animals that were fed 100% organic feed and not given any antibiotics or growth hormones and no genetic engineering is allowed for any crops or livestock products and no irradiation, etc. But it's not just a list of knots. It's a very positive, proactive, preventative approach towards managing both the land and the animals. I'm really glad you brought that up because I hear a lot of people say, that the organic label means that it's not this and it's not that, but you have just given us an entire list of what it is. And I love the connection 
between keeping the soil and water healthy and ultimately producing healthy plants, healthy animals, and healthy people. Now, do people ever say to you, well, that's great, Jim, but do we want to go back and farm the old-fashioned way? Well, it's really the most modern science-based production system there is. Yeah, I mean, we had organic production for centuries, for millennia, and you have to keep in perspective that this chemical experiment only began in the 1940s after World War II. So what's called conventional agriculture is really the new kid on the block and uh, has led to a lot of problems with health impacts, with groundwater contamination. I mean, the list, I'm not going to focus on that because it's so long. And then the whole genetic engineering is really a new experiment that's introducing novel genetic constructs into the environment and the human diet, and there hasn't been research on those. But when you look at modern organic production, it's really developing a whole science of agriculture that's based on harmony with natural systems. And it's a very exciting field of research and a field to be involved in. It's not going back to horse and buggy days by any means, although that may have some appeal as well. Exactly. One of the things I loved about your e-organic webinar, and this was available to the consumer, the general public, as well as researchers nationwide, and your slides and your talk is available, and we'll give our listeners a link to that towards the end. But one of the things I really loved was that you focused on peer-reviewed research. So when people question organic and they say, well, you know, we don't really have the science on that, you proved that thought wrong, and you said, yeah, we actually have a lot of research. So what kind of things really stuck out for you with regard to if somebody came up to me as a dietitian and said, well, Melinda, does it really matter if I choose organic foods? I would go to your research. Which studies in particular led you to your conclusion that it is better to eat organic food? Well, yeah, I do look to, you know, since I work for a university, really look at peer-reviewed research findings. And it's only been since the, well, starting with the 2002 Farm Bill and then expanded in the 2008 Farm Bill where there even was any designated money for organic research. But we're starting to see some of the results of that research now come out the other end. And the trends are very positive. And when you talk about research, I mean, nothing is conclusive. It's always a snapshot in time. But the trends are revealed when you look at one study after another. And I look at the big picture when I talk about the multiple benefits of organic. There are well-documented studies showing lower pesticide residues in the food produced using organic methods and consistently higher levels of nutrients, including antioxidants, bioflavonoids, vitamins, minerals, lower levels of nitrates in the food, which is a positive. But one study in particular that really jumped out at me, University of Washington, looking at uh, a group of uh, five-year-old children, and these are suburban kids. They weren't you know, farm worker kids or, or farmer kids exposed to a lot of pesticides. These are just, you know, suburban kids eating a kind of normal, conventional food kid diet. And the researchers looked for organophosphate insecticide residues in the urine of those children. And all of the children in the study showed the presence of the metabolites of the organophosphate pesticides when they were on a conventional diet. 
They switched them over to an organic food diet, and after just five days eating organic foods, all of the children, the uh, levels of the insecticide metabolites dropped to zero or below detectable. And then they were switched back over to conventional diet, and all of them went back up and showed the presence. And, you know, the researchers concluded that this is one step to eliminate exposure to a dangerous class of insecticide that's known to cause neurological damage in developing children and infants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something like that really jumps out at you. Absolutely. You also showed a wonderful photograph of your wife holding a huge fish. <laughs> and right. this, this is going to appeal to all the anglers out there. And you said, I wouldn't eat the fish. Yeah, well, right. And, and that was uh, caught on Father's Day, no less. With, uh, my wife had all the luck that day. But, yeah, it was a big largemouth bass caught in the backwaters of the Mississippi River up here in southeast Minnesota area. And, you know, the bass is a carnivore, a, a top food chain species, a hunter, predator, and toxins accumulate up the food chain. And so a fish like that will have pesticide residues because of the you know, pesticides that find their way into the water, surface waters, as well as you know, mercury, other heavy metals from industrial sources. So, yeah, a fish like, like that we would catch and release. You know, it's a good breeding stock, but it's certainly not something we'd want to put on the table. And that is such a sad statement about our present-day society, the fact that you can't go out on Father's Day, catch a fish, and fry it up and eat it with your family because you're concerned about toxins. And I know that many departments of health within different states have their own restrictions. You know, if you're pregnant, if you've got young children, don't eat this kind of fish so many times a month. And that's that's tragic, really, that we Yeah, can't. well, and we have, you know... Eh. We can focus on not eating the fish, or in the long run, we can focus on what's causing these toxins to be in the fish and in the water to begin with. And that's where the more land we have under organic management, the more we're preventing pollutants from entering both ground and surface waters. And we've got research at the University of Minnesota showing that organic practices capture moisture so it's not leaching into drainage tiles or aquifers to begin with. So it's keeping that moisture available. But the water that is there has significantly less, like two-thirds less nitrates in it. So that's just one thing that we've looked at as a consequence of organic management, capturing moisture and then preventing pollution in the process. Now, you travel a lot, so you've seen the posters in the airports promoting genetically engineered farming technologies for feeding the world and reducing pesticide risk and for feeding the world, especially in climate change conditions. And you address these topics in your talk. I hate when people are duped into thinking that some sort of technology is going to rescue us when we've got the answers right here with organic farming. So let's talk a little bit first about the pesticide residues. We were promised that genetic engineering or GMOs result in less pesticide use, and that's not the case, is it? No, it's certainly not the case. There's been a dramatic increase, especially in herbicide applications with all of the different crops that are designed to be resistant to Roundup or other types of herbicides, which are then applied multiple times over the growing season because the weeds are becoming resistant to those herbicides. So then 
the original herbicides like Roundup are applied, but then the weeds are developing resistance, so then additional sprays are added of different types of herbicides in a conventional system. And I was just talking about the water impacts, and this one really surprising thing that's come out about the crops that are genetically engineered to contain a bacterial toxin. Mm-hmm. And they're registered as a pesticide. So every cell of that plant, from the seed to the pollen to the grain that's harvested, the crop residues, contains this pesticidal protein. And the crop residues are now being found to still contain that pesticide, and it is showing up in streams six months after a crop has been harvested. The streams are still contaminated with this pesticide, and research in Indiana is showing that that pesticide from the BT corn crops is toxic to caddisfly larvae. And if you know anything about, like, trout fishing, you'll know that caddisflies are kind of a keystone species in the food chain, that a lot of minnows and other higher-level organisms rely on the caddisfly for food source. And here they're being killed by these genetically engineered crop residues. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jim Riddle. He is the Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota Southwest Research and Outreach Center, and he was a former member of the National Organic Standard Board from 2001 to 2005. He is one of my favorite national experts on organic food and farming. Jim, one of the other issues that came up during your excellent webinar had to do with climate change, and we see droughts, we see floods, and yet the organic farming production seems to give us an advantage. Can you explain how that works? Well, yeah, this was a study by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations looking at various strategies to both prevent or mitigate climate change and then to adapt to a changing climate. And number one, because organic farmers rely on crop rotations that have like clover, alfalfa, grasses, small grains, and animal manure for fertility, organic systems are much more successful at sequestering carbon, capturing carbon from the air and then putting it into the soil. And conventional systems that rely on synthetic fertilizers don't have the cover crops, don't have these soil-building crop rotations, and don't sequester near as much carbon. So that's the first thing to look at. But then, like I mentioned when I read that definition, you know, organic farmers rely on recycling nutrients and building biodiversity. So you'll see much more both biodiversity and crop diversity, genetic diversity on an organic farm. So you're hedging your bets. Some things will do well in a given year and other things may or may not. But you have more diversity than just a monocrop type system, which is very fragile when the climate changes with drought or extreme weather events, which we've certainly are becoming much more common. And the study from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization finds that organic systems are much more resilient and can more readily adapt to changes in the climate. Well, and isn't the soil more like a more effective sponge? Right. So So when you have drought years, that sponge effect, the higher levels of organic matter 
those hold moisture. And yeah, research from the Rodale Institute shows that in drought years, organic farming and side-by-side trials consistently outperforms conventional yields. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you talked about the fragile nature of our current farming system. And I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. When I drive, say, from my home in Missouri up to your state of Minnesota, and I see nothing but miles and miles of corn and soybeans, so little biodiversity that I wonder just how much resiliency we really have, even in an ideal situation, if it's just one pest that might be involved. But in a bad year where you've got a lot of flooding or drought, what is the answer, Jim? Well, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, certainly part of the answer is just more promotion of organic agriculture. And I'd really like to see our next farm bill take this on in a, a national security type of approach where it is well documented now, the multiple benefits of organic systems. And we need a national strategy to really, on a large scale, begin converting conventional lands, which are being heavily subsidized for monocropping with just five program crops, receiving direct payments and subsidies and reduced crop insurance. I mean, the deck is stacked in favor of that monocropping system, and it needs to be changed so that we reward crop diversity and crop rotations much more. I mean, there's been lip service, but we need to see this as a a national security issue. And is it true that organic farmers have to pay more because they're seen as a higher risk on crop insurance? Yeah, that is true. And then for most crops, if they suffer a loss, they're only paid at a conventional price, even though they have a record that that crop is worth more. So, yeah, they're discriminated against. There was some language in the last farm bill to begin addressing that, but there's been some heel dragging. There have been some modest changes to crop insurance, but there's still discrimination there against uh, organic farmers. So with all the discrimination and all the hoops that organic farmers have to jump through, farmers still want to farm organically. And you mentioned talking to farmers and asking them why they do so. And I thought your results were really interesting. Yeah, well, like you mentioned, I I was an organic inspector for 20 years, so I visited a lot of organic farms, mostly in the Midwest and Great Plains. And I get there and, you know, always want to establish rapport and start a conversation. And I'm like, you know, why do you farm organically? And there's no right answer, but there's a number of answers. But by far the most common that I would hear would be people concerned about their own family health, their animals' health, the exposure to the pesticides. And one young farmer put it really uh, poignantly when he said, I want to be able to get off my tractor and come in the house and hug my kids without being treated as a toxic object myself. Exactly. I thought it was wonderful that you brought up the president's cancer panel report that was published in April of 2010, and it specifically dealt with environmental cancer risk, something that we don't talk about nearly enough. And I was so disappointed to see that we had this wonderful report totally disconnected from dietary guidelines, right? The new dietary guidelines come out. There's no mention of anything that the president's cancer panel report said. And yet the cancer panel report pretty much said, without using the O word, to choose organic food. Well, right. I mean, here's a direct quote. 
exposure to pesticides can be decreased by choosing, to the extent possible, food grown without pesticides or chemical fertilizers. Similarly, exposure to antibiotics, growth hormones, and toxic runoff from livestock can be minimized by eating meat raised without those medications. That was a bipartisan report that people should be listening to because a lot of research went into those findings and are summarized in that statement I just read. And I believe that report was done under the Bush administration. Is it that began, yeah. The panel was seated prior to President Obama taking office. So, so this is not a red or blue state issue. No, this is no, Everybody no, eats. It's, it's a health cancer prevention. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you saw in the February 2012 issue of Environmental Health Perspectives, and listeners can just Google that. It's really easy to access. It's a wonderful publication that comes out of the National Institutes of Health, and just about every issue has something that intrigues me. But in February, there was an article about obesogens, and these are chemical compounds. Some of them are indeed agricultural compounds that not only can lead down the path towards cancer, but can also cause obesity and type 2 diabetes. Did you see that? I I haven't seen that particular study, but I saw another one that came out of University of Georgia, or maybe it was a different report on the same study, where... Yeah, in, in the liver, which is the, you know, filter in the human body, that pesticides, the, this particular research I saw, are isolated in the liver and fat molecules are formed around those to protect the body from these toxins. And those fat continues to accumulate. So there's been very little research on what could be a huge connection between pesticide and other toxin exposure and obesity. Mm -hmm. The risks just keep on piling up as the research comes in. And yet, one of the biggest barriers that I hear from the consumer perspective is that, well, you know, organic's great, but it costs more. costs more at the checkout. How do you talk to people about the issue of cost? Well, I certainly understand that. I think, though, The best way to have organic food is to raise your own organic garden, Mm -hmm. number one, and which is good exercise, good therapy, as well as great food at a very reasonable cost. So, you know, what are you doing as far as planting a garden this year? But then do you visit the farmer's market? Do you buy food that's in season, that's fresh and local? And do you do any canning, freezing, drying, you know, preserve those nutrients You can be very cost-effective if you do that, or if you're part of a CSA, a community-supported agriculture box delivery system, are you, you know, able to shop at a food co-op where you can get good organic whole foods? And that's a whole other thing is, are you buying whole foods? Are you buying real foods? Or you can buy organic processed foods that are a lot of packaging, a lot of advertising, Uh, That's where the money goes, and sure, they're going to be very high-priced. But you also have to keep in mind that the organic farmers and the whole organic food system really operates on the free market, and it's competing with a heavily subsidized form of agriculture. So the cheap food is unnaturally cheap that it's competing against, so it's not comparing apples to apples. Exactly. You also, it's an investment in your health. You can pay for good food, or you can pay for doctor visits. You know, that's exactly what I was starting to say, is that 
we look at the cost at the checkout, but we don't look at the long-term costs. And we need to start doing more of that full-cost accounting. One of the other issues that you brought up in the webinar was the fact that you've got lower rates of salmonella, lower rates of infections with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. When we start talking about the cost of a hospitalization or the loss of a life, it kind of makes that organic food look a lot more appealing. Well, right. Yeah, uh, you know, that is interesting that because antibiotics aren't used on organic livestock operations, the bacteria there do not develop resistance to the antibiotics. I mean, duh, it's just common sense, but we have research to, to show that now. I mean, but, you know, when you're dealing with livestock products, whether it's milk, eggs, or meat, there are food safety concerns. These and organic has to be just as safe, and, you know, farmers have to take steps to protect from pathogen exposure and all of that. So it's not like organic is magically free of pathogens by any means. But the studies that have been done do show lower levels of salmonella contamination and dramatically lower levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Jim, we just have a couple of minutes left. Is there anything that you'd like to bring up that I haven't asked? Oh, well, um, yeah, you're going to mention uh, uh, the website right. where people can watch the archived video or, or, or download the PowerPoint and see the citations. But, yeah, there was one study that I've added to that show. Let me pull that up here that I didn't mention that is, um, this just came across my desk after I had given that presentation, and it, it has to do with birth defects and glyphosate mm. in Argentina. Mm -hmm. um, physicians there have reported significant increases in birth defects, miscarriages, and child cancer in towns that are surrounded by the soy fields of genetically engineered soy that are sprayed, like I said, repeatedly with glyphosate. And in this one province in Argentina, the uh, birth defect rate went from 19.1 per 10,000 in 1997 to over 85 per 10,000 in 2008 after the Roundup Ready soybeans were introduced to the area. And similar with the rates of childhood cancer. I mean, this is sad. It's criminal. What's it is criminal. There. That's right. Anything that would harm our children's health is criminal. And glyphosate, whenever you hear that word, listeners, remember that means Roundup, which is everywhere, right, for home gardeners as well as farmers who are using genetically modified crops. All right, let's talk about the website. I have www.extension.org backslash organic underline production. You can also go to www.eorganic.info. And, Jim, if, if we'd like to also put the organicecology.umn.edu, I'm assuming that's your the yep. website that you oversee. Right, and, and there's like a static version of the PowerPoint itself there. So you don't have to listen to all the webinar if you want to just look for the links to the citations. Well, I would encourage everyone to listen to the webinar. It was one <laughs> of the best webinars I've heard. We've been speaking with Jim Riddle. He is the Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota, served on the National Organic Standards Board for, from 2001 to 2005, one of our national experts on organic food and farming. Jim, thank you so much for being my guest today. Well, thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure. 
And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Eat organically, everyone. 